Welcome to the DDB podcast for April 2017, volume 55, number four. My name's David Fazakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cape, editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month looks at the challenge of identifying and managing people who are at high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So let's start with a question. What's the current approach to identifying people who are at risk of developing diabetes? So we have um, Healthier You, which is the NHS diabetic prevention program the government has instituted. And the plan around that is patients who might be at high risk from previously organised blood tests are picked up and basically managed to hopefully prevent them developing diabetes in future. So this takes current data either from GP clinical systems or health checks and risk assesses it? Correct, yes. So it'll look back and look at whether you've had an HbA1c done in the past or a fasting blood sugar, that's that sort of entity. So how has this approach been called into question or what, what's driven our concerns? Yeah, so, so our editorial really um, built on the BMJ Open article that came out which picked up this revelation that HbA1c as a screening tool in this situation has a very poor sensitivity. It's about 0.49, which means that roughly only 50% of people who are actually going to go on to develop diabetes will be picked up. Uh, And its specificity is not very good either, about 0.79, which means that there's quite a high pickup of false positives. You know, a number of people who will never have diabetes will be picked up as being told that they are at risk. But if essentially what we're going to do to these people is offer them intensive lifestyle interventions or encourage them to participate in lifestyle interventions, does it matter? Well, probably not. I mean, by definition, we're going to pick up people who probably have uh, lifestyle issues around diet and exercise and weight. So actually intervening and hopefully improving those aspects of their life probably is never going to be anything but a good thing. But we do have concerns when it comes to drug therapy. Yes. So the issue for us, of course, is that increasingly now we have a plan or a developing plan which seems to be, oh, look, we've got a range of drugs here which lower HbA1c and therefore will prevent the development of diabetes. Let's use these instead of lifestyle or if lifestyle fails. And of course, that opens the can of worms of what are the adverse effects of doing that? Not just the adverse effect of using a drug where the long-term outcome of that drug is unknown, but also the the adverse effect of if you give someone a drug, it might be that they actually don't bother to do the lifestyle. So you may actually have a double issue there. So what's the solution? Well, what is the solution? I mean, I think the solution is, is let's be very clear uh, about how we pick up at-risk patients. Be very clear about when we are screening or when we are organising programmes that supposedly um, look for uh, high-risk patients, that we really ask ourselves, are we picking the right groups and are we doing the right things to those groups? And the quality of evidence that we must demand for drug interventions for this population needs to be much better than we currently have. Absolutely. And of course, I think it's different. If you have sick patients, the ability for that drug to cure is important. But the adverse events are not perhaps quite so important because you've got to balance. If you've got healthy people, I think the converse is true. You've got to first of all demonstrate that drug is is safe. That becomes more important when you're treating a whole, you know, huge population. 
And as Andrew Herxheimer, our founding editor, would have said, it's the harms that matter. Absolutely, particularly when, you know, we're looking at some changes in the HbA1c definitions which would indicate that perhaps as many as half of all the Chinese population, for example, would be considered to be pre-diabetic. Thank you very much. Our first main article reviews the evidence for a formulation of lidocaine and prilocaine that's been licensed for primary premature ejaculation. So again, let's start with a question. Do we have a standard definition for what constitutes premature ejaculation? So we don't. Most studies have measured what's called the intravaginal ejaculatory latency time. So this is basically how long a man is able to um, have sex with a partner. And in, in almost every case, it is with a heterosexual partner before they ejaculate. And uh, usually a time of one to two minutes or less than two minutes is considered to be a premature ejaculation. So what we know from population studies is what's the average time you might expect? So this is always a, this is one of those sort of, uh, you know, pub quiz questions, isn't it, really? The average internationally is around four to five minutes, which I think, you know, surprises some people. And puts into context perhaps some of the evidence that we'll look at in, in a minute. So what treatment options do we currently have? So actually, there is quite a good range of options. We've got psychological um, interventions. We have the use of SSRIs. And we have two groups there. We have the off-label use of SSRIs on a regular basis. And then we have the new drug that we covered a year or two back called tapoxetine, which is a sort of use-as-required drug. We have phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitors. Tramadol is used in, in some situations, although I think most of us would find that uh, not something we would be looking at. And then we have anesthetic creams such as Emla, which um, has been used and has been covered by a lot of the international guidelines on premature ejaculation um, have, have looked at Emla cream as a treatment option. But of those, the only one other than this product that's currently licensed in the UK is Tapoxetine. That's right. So all the others are off-label. So how does this new product differ from Emlacrine? Well, simply that it's an aerosol and that you uh, use three sprays as as one dose, as they call it, which is always confusing. Uh, And it basically contains lidocaine and prilocaine, so it contains the same active ingredients as the local anaesthetic cream Emla. But in a different, different strength. That's right. So it's a different combination. And evidence of benefit. So we've we've got three randomised control trials that looked at the evidence, um, and all in all, probably about what six hundred uh, men were were used in the trials. Most of the trials looked at men who had a mean IELT, intravaginal ejaculatory latency time of around half a minute, 0.6 of a minute. And what the study seemed to show was that this uh, spray increased the IELT between. T- two to six fold. So it does do something, but we knew that anyway from previous studies of Emlacream. Cost and availability on the NHS. So this is where things get really quite murky, really. So this drug is currently available privately, costs you £100 for one canister, and you have to order it from an online wholesaler. So it's not even something that I don't that you can get through your local pharmacy. The odd thing about it is although it's only available privately in that way, it has not been blacklisted by the NHS and it is a licensed product. So in theory, it is still available on an FP10. 
which makes it a, a sort of it's an odd situation. I don't quite know how this can arise, really, and I can only presume that at some point the drug tariff will blacklist it. But at the moment, as you say, it, it isn't either blacklisted or scheduled as to a limited no, access. No, that's right. So it's, so it's neither blacklisted that you can't use it or scheduled, which means like um, in the past, things like erectile dysfunction drugs had to have a, a, a particular indication. But it does raise this problem that we come across from time to time, which is off-label prescribing, because here we have a licensed product. It's got a, an in, it's indicated for uh, premature ejaculation, and yet Emla Cream has not got that license. So what, where does that leave a prescriber? Yes, because uh, as, as we all know, paragraph 69 of, of uh, the GMC guidance on prescribing says, you know, that if you, uh, as a practitioner, uh, want to treat a patient, you should always uh, choose a licensed product first over and above an unlicensed or off-label product. And uh, that does leave you a little bit um, suspect. I have to say, however, that off-label Emla equivalent cost is about £8. And there's been a good body of evidence surrounding that and also, you know, backup of international guidelines suggesting its use. OK, thank you very much. Our second article reviews an HRT product that contains conjugated oestrogens and basidoxephine. What is basidoxephine? So basidoxephine is a selective oestrogen receptor modulator, or CIRM, and its cousin, or nephew perhaps, or even perhaps a brother, um, to reloxephine, which people may be aware is the drug that's been around for some time and is licensed for the treatment of osteoporosis in postmenopausal women. And so does this combination offer theoretical advantages over progestogen-containing HRT? Well, this, the, I mean, this is quite a novel idea. So the idea behind this is that you obviously require estrogen for HRT, but if you still have a uterus, you require some sort of treatment to prevent endometrial reaction to that estrogen. And obviously, normally we use progesterone for most, well, for all HRT preparations. But what this does, it uses the selective estrogen receptor modulator as that um, treatment. So it actually, in theory, blocks the action of estrogen on the uterus and, of course, on breast tissue as well, which is the, so in theory, it actually wouldn't see the rise in breast cancer that you see in patients taking long-term HRT. So let's take a step back. What's it actually licensed for? So it's licensed for the management of estrogen deficiency in postmenopausal women who've not had a period for at least a year. And they have to be considered not suitable for That's right. At the moment, it's, it's in those that progesterone is, is not um, an option. So the review that we've done has looked at evidence of benefits. So presumably that's on symptoms? Yeah, so, so we've got five studies, although one was discounted. So we've got sort of four studies um, in a series. And we have a couple of 12-week studies that showed a reduction in hot flushes compared to placebo and quality of life indicators and sleep improving compared to placebo. And the reduction in hot flushes was, what, 75%? Exactly, yeah. Although if you looked at the placebo group, they saw a 50% reduction uh, in hot flushes as well. Okay, but it does do something over and above above placebo. So some improvement in, in symptoms. Any effect on bone density? Yeah, so we have one study that looked at the action of this drug over, these drugs, sorry, over 12 months, and that showed increased bone density at 12 months. So that brings us to the potential harms. What about the endometrial? Yes, this effect? is... Uh, 
And there's sort of a, there's a cloud, unfortunately, hanging over this because we have two studies that were meant to look at this. The two-year study looking at the instance of endometrial hyperplasia had missing data. And in fact, the European Medicines Agency felt they didn't want to include it in, their, in looking at the data on this. And the, the one-year um, study also looked at endometrial hyperplasia. And there were some issues around follow-up and some data missing from that study. So it, it's just got a bit of a shadow overhanging that. So although you always get data missing from, from trials, and the, I think the regulator said this is what you can expect, it still leaves a question over what is its long-term that's right. And of course, you know, we've got no long data beyond one to two years for this combination. We've got little evidence of its efficacy or its safety in patients over 65 year olds. We have no direct comparison studies between it and the standard HRT treatments. And, you know, I think what's 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 changed enormously in the last few years has been the documented, well-recognized issues around stroke risk, thromboembolic disease and cancer risks. And I think women wanting to go on HRT want to have a clear understanding of what those are when they start a treatment. And we still don't really have that data for this combination yet. So many unanswered questions before we can really be confident where this sits. Absolutely. I say it's novel and you, you can't help thinking this is, this is a clever combination, but we just don't have the evidence yet. OK, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And for any comments or feedback, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.